Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. Well, good morning, everyone. The final week, this is week 13, final week of this church history endeavor. Um, let me uh, start off with on this day in church history. On uh, December 10th, 1520, German reformer Martin Luther publicly burns Pope Leo X's bull Exerge, Exerge Domine, which had demanded that Luther recant his heresies, including justification by faith alone. And we all know how that went. All right, so this is the final week. Um, before I actually uh, begin the class, a couple of like admin and announcements. So um, starting... So there's going to be a break. Next week is the Meet to Elders event right here at the same time. And then there will be no education hour or education until uh, January 14th. We'll start back up again on January 14th. Brian Simpers will be doing a four week or so uh, discussion class on worldview, on the different worldviews that have impacted the church about 100 years or so, and how that has influenced the church and the culture, and I guess how the church uh, responds to that. that. That's up to him. So that'll be a four week class starting January 14th. Um, and then let me pass out this. Pass this out. So that is a list of primary and secondary resources that I've covered in the class. Um, you can find most of the primary resources at the website listed at the top, uh, ccel.org, Christian Classics Ethereal Library. So since most of, obviously, the primary sources are in the public domain, because they're thousands of years old, you can read most of those documents that we went through uh, over the course of this class. The secondary sources are some of the books that I held up or they are some of the books that I've been using to help me um, present the information uh, about the class. So if you're curious, there's a list for you. Okay? And we will now get started. I'll open us up with prayer. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for this day and I thank you for allowing me to share what I've learned about church history, what has been shown to me, and I pray it has just been edifying for everyone that has been able to attend. Lord, I just uh, ask that you be with us on this very uh, last class, and uh, that um, you would just be glorified. You, your church would just be lifted up in our hearts, that we'd be thankful for your church and thankful for uh, the work that you have done for us on the cross. Amen. Uh, one more admin thing. All of these uh, classes have been recorded. So uh, the church has like a podcast or uh, uh, a page on the website where you can go back and listen to classes if you want, or you can share them with people. So all 13 weeks have been recorded. And I might share more about this in the congregational meeting that we have with the, the plan for adult ed going long term. But I'm actually hoping to get this course in, um, it's, a, it's a system that a lot of universities and things use for uh, lectures. And so we could have it in a structured format where you can actually go through it week by week and listen to the lectures and answer questions, take quizzes, all that stuff. So that's something I'm 
been thinking about working on so that if we do have new people coming to the church, especially new believers, there is a resource hub per se that they could go to and just take the courses at their leisure. So it's something I've been trying to implement. But I'll speak more about that at the congregational meeting. So today we want to talk about um, Pentecostalism. We will also talk about a little bit of where the church has been moving over the last century or so, and then we will talk about the founding of the PCA, this denomination that this congregation is in. And then I actually want to uh, leave the, a large bulk of time for you guys for discussion. I have a list of questions that I want to ask you guys, and then we can end it there. So Pentecostalism. Um, the spark of 20th century Pentecostalism was a three-year-long revival beginning in 1906 at the Azusa Street Mission in Los Angeles. Um, according to accounts and what happened at Azusa, there were personal experiences of tongue speaking, and the Azusa Street uh, revivals ignited worldwide Pentecostalism. Does everyone familiar with what tongue speaking means? Yes? Okay. Christians from all over North America, Europe, and the majority of the world visited Azusa Street and then carried um, their experiences back to their home. Out of this, we start to get Pentecostal denominations. Soon America was dotted with charismatic prayer groups composed mostly of members of mainline Protestant churches. So we need to make a, a distinction here about Pentecostalism. So one scholar divides uh, the Pentecostal experience, the movement into three distinct groups. The first groups are called Pentecostals. They are members of explicitly Pentecostal denominations. So some of those denominations include Assemblies of God, International Church, Foursquare Gospel, Church of God of Prophecy, and subcategories would include Oneness, Baptist, Holiness, and Apostolic Churches. So Pentecostals proper are part of specific Pentecostal denominations. They believe that the uh, gifts that you see in the New Testament are still available for people today, especially tongue speaking. Um, some believe uh, healing is still available. So that's kind of how Pentecostals work itself out. The second group are called Charismatics. They usually describe themselves as having been renewed in the Spirit and as experiencing the Spirit's supernatural and miraculous power. They remain within and also form organized renewal groups within their historical non-Pentecostal denominations. So they have the same understanding of the gifts of the Spirit, but they're not in explicitly Pentecostal denominations. So they could be in the Roman Church, they could be in PCA, they could be in OPC, they could be in Southern Baptist, etc. So they hold to these, this understanding of, of the gifts, but they are not part of specific Pentecostal denominations. Then the third group, called independent charismatics, are largely found in the independent charismatic Christian tradition that is outside of historic Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant churches. So they're not in a Pentecostal denomination. They're not in like churches like this. They're kind of starting their own thing. A lot of them are present in what is called the Global South, and I'll go over that term in a few minutes. Um, and these traditions often grow by planting new churches or by breaking off from existing denominations. Um, so in a sense, they're almost starting their own Pentecostal denomination, but they're not part of ones that are already established. And then they're also not part of currently non-Pentecostal established denominations. Does that make sense? So three, one scholar devises this movement into three types. And this movement occurred 
over about 50 to 60 years. So about the 60s is when this really started to become solidified. You could start to identify three different groups. Okay, any questions about that? So this, this, is move, this movement is moving, it starts in America and it moves throughout the American church for most of the 20th century to what we have uh, today. Uh, the movement would influence or be a part of almost every denomination in, um, in America. Um, and there's very different degrees of the second type, the charismatics, where some people say some gifts are still available and others say all the gifts are still available. So there's varying degrees of what exactly is it meant to be charismatic. But the point is you have this movement going through all the different denominations, starting with the Azusa Street revivals. Okay, so that's Pentecostalism. The other thing going on in the 20th century, we need to revisit the Roman Church. Vatican II. Vatican II was the second ecumenical council of the Vatican, therefore called Vatican II. It was the 21st and is the most recent ecumenical council of the Roman Catholic Church. It met at St. Peter's, Basilic Peter's Basilica in Vatican City for four sessions, each lasting between eight and 12 weeks in the fall of each of the four years from 1962 to 1965. The council was opened on the 11th of October, 1962 by John the 23rd, and then was closed on the 8th of December, 1965 by Paul the 6th. So John died during the, uh, the council and the next pope uh, closes the council. Pope John the 23rd called the council because he felt that the church needed quote-unquote updating. He said in, better, in order to better connect with the people in an increasingly secularized world, some of the church's practices and teachings needed to be improved and presented in a more understandable and relevant way. So that is the impetus for this uh, council. Uh, as I understand it, it is the only ecumenical council that was not formed in reaction, specifically in reaction to something. Now, it is kind of a reaction that they feel like the church isn't doing a good job of presenting its message to the world, um, but there is no like heresy or, or threat of a heresy that is informing the formation of this council. So, Vatican II, its importance, it was the first ecumenical council to be truly, quote-unquote, worldwide. It was the first to be attended by bishops originating from all parts of the world, including some 250 native Asian and African bishops. At Vatican I, a hundred years earlier, Asia and Africa were represented by European missionaries. The scope and variety of issues it addressed was unprecedented. The topics discussed range from the most fundamental theological issues, such as the nature of the church or nature of revelation, to practical ones such as nuns' habits and music in the liturgy. Its style was novel as it avoided anathemas and condemnations. It was the first general council in the era of mass circulation. There were newspapers, radio, and television. Information and reactions could be reported immediately something beyond the realm of possibility at other councils. So this is like the first modern era with technology that a council was called. What changed? 
there were changes in the Mass. So previously, Mass had always been given in only Latin, and the priest would face away from the congregation. Mass was now to be conducted in the language of the people. So you guys remember the story about Wycliffe and some of the reformers and some of the martyrs who wanted the, the, they wanted the scriptures in their own language. And the church said, no, we're not doing that. We're going to do that in, under specific guidelines. And now the Roman church opens it up. Mass is now in whatever the language that the country they are holding the service in. This, this, is, a, this is a great thing, actually, because now people can understand um, what the priest is saying, what, what is being read from the scriptures. This is, this is really a, a good thing. Um, there were new possibilities granted for music and singing, and so uh, some of the style of music would change. I'm going to take a little bit of a leap and say that some of the charismatic influences is happening here as the music is changing. Um, women were now allowed to be in upfront roles as readers, lectors, and Eucharistic ministers. They could also be altar servers. And Catholics were no longer forbidden to attend Protestant services or forbidden from reading a Protestant Bible. So some, some things changed in, in Vatican II. But the more things change, the more they stay the same. Shortly after the release of the Council's official documents, Reformed theologian and author Lorraine Botner, who lived through the Vatican II and watched it, provided his perspective on the Council's effects in the preface to his books, Roman Catholicism. He says, Vatican II repeated the claim that the Roman Church is the only true church, although it did recognize that other churches contained some elements of truth. He also said Pope John XXIII, who called the first session, and Pope Paul VI, who presided over the later sessions, took care to emphasize that no changes would be made in the doctrinal structure of the church. However, Pope Paul did promulgate one new doctrine, which asserts that Mary is the mother, mother of the church. So you see that there in italics, no changes made in the doctrinal structure of the church. Basically, doctrine didn't change from anything from before this council. He goes on, on previous occasions, Rome has changed her tactics when old methods became ineffective, but she has never changed her nature. In any religious organization, doctrine is the most basic and important part of its structure since what people believe determines what they do. An official document, the Constitution on the Church, prepared by the Council and approved by the Pope, reaffirms basic, basic Catholic doctrine precisely as it stood before the Council met. So nothing has really changed. And here is the kicker. If the Roman Catholic Church were reformed according to Scripture, it would have to be abandoned. But the gross errors concerning salvation still remain. Moreover, the council did nothing toward removing the more than 100 anathemas or curses pronounced by the Council of Trent on the Protestant churches and belief. So the Roman Church today still holds to what they declared at Trent, for and against, um, they do not hold to justification by faith alone. They still have a um, sacerdotal system where you need the sacraments to get infused grace. You're not declared righteous. So the differences that the reformers reacted against are still in place. They just changed how they engaged with the culture and the world, which I think were good things, but they've not changed their core doctrines. So I just want to Lay that out there. 
So that's what's going on and with the Roman church. Any questions? All right. Then I had mentioned with the um, Charismatics of Pentecostals a uh, term called the Global South. So now we're kind of looking at where the church at large in the whole world has been moving over the past 100 years and where scholars see the church continuing to move from here on out. So the center of Christianity in the 20th century had shifted from the West, North America and Europe, to what is called the Global South. That is shorthand for three continents, Latin America, Africa, and Asia, a subcontinent, India, and more than 130 countries. So the center of Christianity has been America and Europe, and now it is shifting. What I mean by shifting is basically the number of people who, who are called Christians in those areas. The number has now been decreasing in the West and increasing in the global South. So here's, here's some numbers that I'll kind of put it in perspective. In 1910, more than 80% of all Christians lived in Europe and North America. By 2010, there's only a slight majority of Christians who lived in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And scholars estimate that by 2025, in two years, 70% of all Christians will be living in the global south. So let me give you some stats and figures, if anyone in here likes stats and figures. <laughs> so here, here's an example of this, of this shift. So <clears throat> in 1976, U.S. President Jimmy Carter began establishing relations with China. In 1982, a new law permitted new freedoms to Chinese Christians as well as the printing of Bibles in the country. Both registered and unregistered churches enjoyed greater liberty. Churches grew rapidly and many became quite large. By the end of the 20th century, it was estimated that nearly 80 million Christians lived and worshipped in China, which would be some 8% of the country's population. Christian numbers grew rapidly in Korea as well. Catholic church membership more than tripled from 166,000 in 1953 to 575,000 by 1962. The Second Vatican Council created opportunities for Catholic churches to cooperate with other Christian churches in the country. And Catholicism went from being a largely rural phenomenon to more urban and therefore became more culturally mainstream. Protestantism also spread in Korea. In 1960, one in 20 Koreans identified as Protestant. By 2010, that number was one in four. In 2020, Korea was home to five, five of the world's largest churches. The largest was which began in 1961 and was believed to have 800,000 members in 2018. I don't even, I don't even know how you, that's, <laughs> but that's, yeah. The, church, the church's pastor developed a system of satellite churches and cell groups to connect its members. These strategies likewise influenced some church, church growth strategies in the United States in the 80s and the 90s. In 2020, one scholar says, you can find the world's largest Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, and Assemblies of God congregations in Seoul, Korea. Korea was also the second largest missionary sending country in the world, second only to the United States. So our status in the West as a quote-unquote Christian country, society, is now, it's now leaving. People are moving, more Christians are now popping up in what is called 
the global south. Why? I'm not sure. It's just God's providence. I mean, it could be our culture with the, the continual rejection of the authority of the scriptures in, in our personal lives. I think you can you could draw a line between when I was talking about the, the impacts of uh, modern science and higher criticism, how those were um, being inappropriately used, and then cutting away the authority of the scriptures. This has obviously been a 300-year-long process. And now people in, in the global south are uh, starting to resonate with the message. I personally think because a lot of these people are impoverished, and they, are, they have very difficult lives, and the message of hope, of there's a God out there that loves them, I think could resonate with, with people much more easily. There's another reason uh, Latin has been supporting the global self financially for these recent years, so that's really taken hold. <laughs> well, thank you, Lenny. Yeah. I think you're right about the poverty thing, I know it, but we've heard also, at least in Africa, that that's, that's, that makes them wide open to the health, wealth, and prosperity. Gospel. <laughs> I attended one of the Ligonier conferences a few years ago, and they, I can't remember what the overall theme was, but they had a sub-theme about uh, missionaries and the Global South. And a Reformed pastor came up, I can't remember what country it was from, I want to say Nicaragua. He came up and shared what he was experiencing, and I'll just paraphrase, is that a lot of them will, the Christians, they will come into Christianity through Pentecostalism, through the charismatic churches. Um, many will stay there. But some realize that, um, I'm not trying to bash anyone, but some realize that th they're only getting milk and they start to want steak. And some Reformed uh, churches that are planted down there are able to give them the steak, and you see some people moving away from the Pentecostalism into some Reformed churches. Now that's a very small number compared to the, the charismatic churches down there. He also says said that... Um, there is another group of charismatics that they're dealing with, some of the health, wealth stuff that they're, they're seeing, but also a lot of syncretism, where they are combining elements of Christianity with whatever their, natural, their cultural tribal things were or traditions, and they're calling that Christianity. And so some of these reformed, the challenges they're facing is that they had to say, no, that is not Christianity. This is, this is part of your culture. I'm not saying it's bad or wrong, but to call it Christianity is wrong. And so they have to kind of help them through that. And so those are the two challenges that he's, he shared at the, at the conference. Um, so that, that's kind of what scholars are saying that's going on with the church uh, right now and over the past 100 years or so. All right, moving on. So this church is part of the Presbyterian Church in America. So I want to briefly go through how that denomination got formed. So last week I talked about Machen and OP and Westminster, and that was dealing with the Northern Presbyterian Church. PCA comes out of the Southern Presbyterian Church. It has its roots in theological controversies over also liberalism in the PCUS, the Southern Church. In 1942, as the PCUS began to experiment with confessional revision, liberalism began to become influential in its seminaries. Attempts were made to merge with the more liberal PCUSA, so the Southern Church is becoming more liberal, 
They want to merge with the Northern Church, which has already been declared liberal by Machen and others. And so renewal groups within the PCUS, they don't want to merge. They don't want to uh, compromise their denomination. So renewal groups pop up to try to stop this, to try to help people say, see what's the problem with liberalism, what, is, what are the doctrines that we need to hold to. Um, they sought to reaffirm the Westminster Confession, and many conservatives felt that presbyteries had been violating the confession by receiving ministers who refused to affirm the virgin birth and bodily, bodily resurrection. So the liberal tenets of rejecting the supernatural is now creeping into the Southern Church. Opponents of the merger took specific issue with the United Presbyterian Church's ad adherence to the Auburn Affirmation. The Auburn Affirmation were those five points. Some of them are ecclesiastical, but others were doctrinal, saying we don't have to hold to certain doctrines, which would violate the Westminster Confession, which is, was the standard of the church, and so they're violating the Constitution as well, so that would be another problem. The Southern Presbyterian denomination had rejected the adoption of these confessions as official standards prior to 1942. <clears throat> and so here is a timeline. I took this from the PCA Historical Center. So this is a copy-paste. This is not any of my work here. This is a direct lift. Let me just briefly go through them. The Southern Presbyterian Journal began led by Dr. Nelson Bell and others concerned over evidences of modernism or liberalism in the PCUS. 55, PCUS's presbyteries reject efforts to enter a three-way merger of the PCUSA, the United Presbyterian Church of North America, and PCUS. Much of the resistance against this merger came from the journal and its readership. So that's why they start these journals, they start these little fellowships to really gather support and try to, to defend Orthodox Christianity. 58, Bill Hill establishes Presbyterian Evangelism Fellowship. 59, Taylor becomes a new editor of what is now simply called the Presbyterian Journal. 65, Concerned Presbyterians is formed under the leadership of ruling elder Kenneth Keyes. 66, two Savannah churches led by pastors Todd Allen and Clifford Bruton withdraw from the PCUS and began a fight to retain their church's properties. Presbyterian Church United is formed as a reform organization for its ministers in 69. In 70, two Savannah churches which withdrew, yeah, which withdrew in 1966 finally win their property case, which when became before the Supreme Court. In 71, a steering committee is formed to direct the planning for a new denomination. So at this, when the problem started in 42, you have about 30 years, 30 years of trying to right the ship 30 years perhaps of working with people, 30 years of not saying we're going to start our own thing, and then eventually it's, it's time. 72, to receive churches leaving the PCUS, Vanguard Presbytery is formed on September 7th. 73, February 13th, Warrior Presbytery is formed by churches leaving the Tuscaloosa Presbytery. And then May 18th through 19th, Convocation of Sessions met, voting 349 to 16 to call for a new denomination. August 7th through 9th, the advisory convention met, laying groundwork for the new denomination. And December 4th through the 7th, the first General Assembly met at Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. The assembly chose National Presbyterian Church as the name of the new denomination. So today is the 10th. On Monday was the 50th anniversary of the PCA, December 4th. So the denomination has been around for 50 years. 74, after learning of a potential conflict with their chosen name, the assembly chose a new name, the Presbyterian Church in America. 
Uh, side note, the OP Church's original name was the Presbyterian Church of America. PCUSA took exception to, exception to that, had a legal battle, and therefore they changed their name to, the, to OP. So these guys learning that story said we are the Presbyterian Church in America, and that seemed to fly. So, All right. Um, so that is how the PCA formed. That was a very quick overview. Like I said, the denomination has been around for 50 years. It has not had its, it's had its struggles, but um, personally, so I've only been doing this for two years. Ron, Lanning, and Alan have been doing this way longer than I have, but um, my experience uh, the past two years at the Presbyteries and the General Assembly is we are a faithful denomination to the Scriptures. We have some things I think that creep in, but I think the way that our system is built up that we can uh, prevent those. Um, scholars say normally around the 50-year mark or so is that's when you see denominations start to decline, to drift away from their founding beliefs and values. So uh, the fact that uh, the PCA two years ago rejected some things that could have led us in that direction is very optimistic, I think, at least in my perspective. Um, so I think we do have a very faithful denomination. We have a good system set up to prevent uh, that kind of stuff creeping in. However, it does take men and women to be faithful to the scriptures. A denomination is only as strong as is the people within it. So, you know, the next 50 years, we have to, you know, continue to pass down the faith that has once been uh, delivered to us. A few years ago, they redesigned the PCA logo. A lot of people joke that this looks like the Mandalorian. So I forgot, I forgot to grab a picture, but at the last General Assembly, they were handing out you know, PCA t-shirts, and they had this Mandalorian cardboard figure set up in the lobby, and they had the PCA t-shirt on them. It was, it was pretty funny. Uh, this is a picture from the last General Assembly at, in, um, in Memphis. Um, so this was the 50th General Assembly. It had the, I think it had the second or third largest amount of commissioners. Commissioners are the elders who go to vote. I think the first one, or one of the first, was the year previous, my, my first year. The number of ruling elders has gone up percentage-wise, which is a very good thing, because the ruling elders are really who started this denomination. And no offense to my fellow teaching elders, but we do kind of preserve it a little better because we, we're among the people a little bit more. Dennis always had this funny quote, is that the clergy are the ones that bring in all the heresies. So um, the beauty about this denomination is that the TEs and REs can work together, and then there's checks and balances to prevent really error to come in. And I don't know, just being at the assembly, I'm always, the last two years, I've been extremely encouraged that things are very hard to get through, which kind of may irritate some people, but I think that's a good thing. Um, we, ha we have our standards already, and if we need to change them, because they're not scripture, we could have erred in them. If we do need to change them, we have to think through it. Really think through what we're changing and why we're changing it, and the process to do it is not very easy. So I'm always encouraged by that and how men on the floor are able to um, uh, debate and discuss, but in the um, manner of friendship and not too much heated. There, there were some, but, you know, I'm always, I've been encouraged the last two years. 
The upcoming assembly is here in Richmond. I'm on the host committee, so that means I'm part of planning what's going to happen at the assembly, just getting things set up. Um, this was our booth at, at Memphis, just trying to get people aware of what's coming up. Um, there have been some like uh, hotel booking problems in the past, and there was the joke that the last assembly had, you know, we had the best barbecue because we were at Memphis. And so our, tag, our tagline became, well, you have the best barbecue, but we'll have hotel rooms for you. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, so uh, yeah, the upcoming General Assembly is in Richmond uh, on June 10th through 14th. It'll be at the convention center. Okay. Yes. Um, over the couple months, as we get into the new year, you'll be hearing more and more about what's going on in the General Assembly. Uh, we will need volunteers here and there, uh, people who just want to pray for us. So more and more I'll make uh, announcements about that. Um, but I want to close here with the PCA uh, with its motto. Faithful to the scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. So the motto has gone over some slight revisions over the years, but essentially the essence of this motto has been the same since its founding. And that's why I'm pretty optimistic about the denomination, that these are the, the guiding principles of the denomination. We actually had discussions about this at the host committee. What, what, is, what has that looked like in the past 50 years, and what could it look like in the next 50 years? And the really fruitful discussion is basically about discipleship, teaching people the faith, teaching people in the church the faith, but then also not forgetting that there are God's people who are not in the church yet. So we need to go out and be very mission-minded. And so this congregation is a part of um, this denomination. I think these would be good principles for us to remember as we are part of this uh, congregation and this denomination and the church at large. I mean, the PCA is not the only church. It's just part of the true worldwide church. This is our expression of living out the Christian life. All right, so I started with right after the apostles, and we go all the way to today in the PCA, over 13 weeks. So I want to end the class and our time today with eight questions. And I will do the first four right now. Let me read these for you, and then answer freely, any of the four, if you'd like. What has impacted you in the class? What have you learned? What do you want to learn more about? And have you noticed any growth? I think what's really impacted me is to see how um, errors <laughs> kind of recycle and, and how God is faithful to the true church and continues to, to grow, but it's also, but I mean, some things do same, stay the same and should stay the same. Um, you know, being true to uh, the word and all the things we just um, um, for the motto of PCA. But I think that God has a way of stirring people's hearts to move in the direction that, um, that he wants us to go. And that's really encouraging. Well, I'm particularly impacted this morning by how ignorant I was of so much of what you covered and how much I must have missed in the previous 12 weeks, so I'm glad you said it's online. Okay. Great. I had no idea.
idea of, of a lot of what you've covered this morning. Well, that's encouraging to me because that's how I wanted to do this, just to share what I've learned and so that you guys can learn about it and then go and learn on your own. So. This is the only one I've been to. So. It's all right. Uh, I was in, really encouraged today because I lived through everything that you talked about today, and I would vouch that everything is accurate. Thanks. <laughs> I really lived through. I mean, all the confessional things and everything, Vatican II, and uh, um, I would just add one thing: the the Pentecostal. Churches are almost totally strongly Armenian. That's true. Just throw that. In. Yep. Anyone else? Nathan. As I think in terms of like around the Christian Church, it's uh, helpful to have the history and see how the, the faith has grown, but also to see how the PCA has, has grown in, as well. Things and so I think what's mostly impacted me is seeing God's faithfulness throughout history, and that you still have work today. I think that's very encouraging. Mm -hmm. um, what I've learned is um, what liberalism is and what it isn't, and uh, I think the importance of reading what Machen had to say about it, and that it's, it's a false religion, it's a slippery slope, and it's really dangerous, and we need to call it out. Yeah. That's good. All right, move on to my next set of questions. Do you feel better equipped to run the Christian race or answer objections to Christianity? Do you feel like you may be able to better recognize doctrinal error? Do you see an importance or not to church history? Come on, Dan. What you got? <laughs> I mean... I, I think that you can see a pattern of reaction and overreaction and the church careening in every direction, although I very much doubt anyone is going to learn from this, which makes me a little bit sad. But you can learn from it. <laughs> I'm never going to hold a position of authority. You don't know that? No, I'm pretty sure. Then anyone you disciple, anyone you talk to, you don't have to have a position of authority. Well, fair enough, but this is more of a church body corporate than... Yes, but we, I think we can apply principles from the church at large to our individual lives. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I do see a lot of importance to church history because you, just what you covered this morning, you see God's faithfulness and its, its adherence to the scriptures that has allowed the church to survive. The second question, recognizing doctrinal error, I think your, your class has helped reinforce in my mind the, the two big things that are foundational to almost every doctrinal error, one or both, is who is Jesus yeah. and, and what's the authority of the scriptures. Mm -hmm. and, and whenever you hear, oh, well, you know, we're rethinking the mm -hmm. of Jesus, or you got to understand that the scriptures were... You know, a cultural artifact mm. of the time that Paul or Moses lived in. Once you start hearing something like that, you know, that, that's when the, the, your flashlight ought to be shining very carefully on what comes after that, because that, that's, those two things tend to be the, the root of 
Thank you for that. So that's a really good summation of most of the problems that the church has been dealing with. Anyone else? Or at least heresy, right? The, like the high errors. I think that you can have a lot of doctrinal error that doesn't come out of those, but I think the biggest ones do. This is probably a question before. How, how does one know when you when a church is just not a church? Really fallen? Yeah. One. What? What is it called? When do we? When do we? Does it slip into a cult? Or yeah. That is a really good question. Um, I think John Knox can help us with that. He has three marks of the church that we faithfully, oh gosh, I just blinked. We faithfully proclaim the scriptures, administer the sacraments, and do church discipline. If church discipline isn't done, you can't protect the peace and purity of, of the church. A lot of, a lot of churches only do two, but they won't do the third one. There are probably other marks. There's uh, an organization called Nine Marks that, that goes through what that means. The confession also puts it in a way that there are true and false, true and false churches, and there are churches that have more truth or or more clear truth. I guess that he put it. And there's like a scale. They won't say that all churches are false. They won't put a hard line on it. But how do you know? I think that the marks of the church can help us. Um, how do they answer what is the gospel? How do they answer what are the scriptures and who is Christ? I think those would be some ways to look at it. I don't think there's really a definitive answer, though. I mean, that's kind of the sticking point of some of these controversies is, you know, why is the Roman church, why did they go after the Reformers, and why do the Reformers go after the Anabaptists, et cetera, et cetera. So, all right, my last question. Have any of these cloud of witnesses, so that's the name of the course, helped you appreciate Christ or his church more? And you can't just say yes. mentioned before is God's providence is the whole thing. The whole all these years. And and he's gonna see it done. He's gonna see it done. So what so people you know, people are you know, his church will be the the, the era the one straight that you know that he'll guide and um little's right word, but he will shape his church and his church will be his church at the end. Wherever wherever it will be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I would like echo that. It's kind of been nice to have sort of a macro view of the history. Because I feel like for me, looking at the micro issues of our day can be like, discouraging and just sort of overwhelming at times. But looking back and all that the church has been through, all that the gospel has endured through the, through the centuries, it's encouraging to see that. You know, this too shall pass. You know, it's uh, God's power is greater than the issues of our day. Well, I'll just close with how I would answer the question. Um, I'm naturally bent towards reading church history and theology. It's kind of how God wired me. Um, for me, just like what Paul is saying, just seeing that we are right now one part of a larger picture uh, keeps me from being a little arrogant and too hyper-focused on myself or the culture that we're in because the problems we are facing today, they're not going to be the same tomorrow, but God's church will still be here. On a more individual level, looking at individuals, just looking at like 
Polycarp, how he was faithful to the end, even though he got burnt alive. Uh, Luther being able to stand for doctrine because he knew it's what the scripture said. Those are encouragements uh, to me. Um, and third, on the more uh, intellectual level, if people come to me with questions about the faith that I just can't answer on my own, well, I turn back to history because, as you had said earlier, a lot of the same issues that come up are just repackaged. Same, same core problem, just presented in a different way. So how did they answer it back then? Can that inform me or help me answer it today? Um, not for the benefit, well, it is for a benefit for me, but also for perhaps the benefit of people that I am um, honored to disciple. So they help me to help others, in a sense. So that's why I really enjoy church history. That's why I read it in my free time. That's why I'm a history nut. As I learn from the past to in inform today to hopefully shape the future. So, any final closing questions? All right, well, I want to thank you all for coming in week in and out and dealing with me and dealing at my 100 mile per hour pace of church history. Um, like I said, Brian will take up the next class starting January 14th on Worldview, so. He's kind of very knowledgeable of that, so you definitely want to be here for that if you are able. Uh, any questions going forward, you know, outside of here? If, you, if I can help you find any resources or whatever about church history, please let me know. I'd be happy to help you. So let me close this out in prayer. Lord, I thank you for uh, this, this class you've been allowing me to teach. I thank you for these men and women uh, being able to come and, and hear and listen. Uh, we we're all thankful for the church you've built over the centuries and you continue to build today and that you will continue to build in the future, but not just build, but sustain and empower and lift up and encourage and just be a part of. Uh, help us to see that we are um, one part of a large stream of your faithfulness. Help us to appreciate your church more. Help us to preach, appreciate uh, your son's work on the cross. Help us to look to you for all things in our hearts and our minds and help us to see that there have been faithful women and men who have gone before us. We pray that they would be an example and encourager to us to help us run our own race. Lord, be with us today as we continue to be a part of your church, as we gather together for a service where we hear your message of the cross and your gospel. We ask that you would strengthen this congregation and continue it moving forward in the decades. It's been in Williamsburg for quite a while now, but I pray that you would strengthen it and continue it and move it forward as part of your larger church. We're so thankful for that, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.